All right, you may be seated. It's uh, good to see everyone this morning. So my name is um, George. I'm one of the elders here at the Hallows. Uh, I've been an elder here probably for about four years now. Um, I think my wife and I have been coming, I think, almost eight years at this point. Um, this is the first time I'm preaching. Uh, so I do get asked every now and then, hey, like, why don't you preach more? Uh, the biggest reason is, is because I have really, really bad ADD. So it makes things like this, standing in front of a bunch of people, just kind of like looking at your faces and like starting to like, what are they thinking about and all that stuff. So that goes through my mind a lot. So that's probably one of the things. Uh, the other thing, too, is that one of the things that's kind of been a struggle for me for a lot of my life is that ADD makes it really, really hard to like study, to read uh, and to pray, because although like my my eyes are like reading something, my mind is constantly like in this like wonderland of things that are happening and starts off with, oh, this is a cool little illustration and then trails off to, hey, this is something that happened when you were six years old. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it can be a little bit uh, a little bit hard at times. So and I'm, part of the reason I'm bringing this up is that typically a lot of what I do here at the church is that I do I help to kind of get the uh, everything going in the morning, you know, I'll kind of like vacuum, I'll clean, uh, make sure the chairs are straight and all that fun stuff. And because I was preaching this morning, I decided to come into the church uh, yesterday uh, to get a lot of that stuff done. And I realized something is that there's actually no greater posture for prayer uh, than scrubbing a toilet. So that's my pastoral advice for you this morning. If you are having trouble being in that way, just please scrub a toilet. Uh, it's, a, it's a great illustration in terms of uh, what we need to do. So, um, so that's... To, yeah, again, ADD. I don't know if I was really planning on saying that, but it just came out, so here we go. So pay attention. This could be entertaining. Who knows what happened? So um, a few weeks ago, I wrote a blog called Jesus Wept, um, and it was kind of the story of, of Lazarus and Jesus going into that situation, and I wrote it at a time where there, you know, there was the shooting in Texas. There were a couple of racially motivated murders. Um, there was also reports about kind of abuse and cover-ups that had been in the church in general. And it was a time of, of grieving. And so, like many of you, I also struggle with trying to reconcile those things, reconcile uh, the goodness of God with tragedies that we see around us. And so I, I kind of wrote that blog to illustrate that. Um, I want to take it a, a, little bit, uh, a little bit further and kind of expound on that, but really looking at that story in light of some background information and also uh, some of the events that were leading up to Lazarus. Um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a YouTube guy. I watch a lot of different like YouTube channels, and um, you know, it's 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 a lot of fun for me. One of the channels I like it's called Secret Base, and they do these videos called Rewind. Um, and what they do, they kind of just point out like um, like these kind of sports stories, like this is sports event. Um, I think one of the one of the ones I saw recently had to do with like Kawhi Leonard shot when he was with the Toronto Raptors in terms of kind of like what carried them to the NBA Finals. And what they do, they take that and they rewind. They go back to all these different events and stuff that happened, trades and you know the drama that led up to that event, and then it finishes with this like this story, this picture of Kawhi dribbling out, making the shot, bounces, hits the rim, bounces like 15 feet in the air and comes down. Amazing, amazing story, and that's how it ends. So this is kind of like my vision for that, is that we're going to go in, we're going to end up with the story of Lazarus, and we'll spend some time there, but we're going to kind of do a quick flyover um, for what's going on um, before that. 
Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that this is typically different than how we normally do sermons here. Um, Usually we are an exegetical chapter by chapter or passage by passage church. Um, And there's a reason why we do that. So I think number one, it makes us accountable that we, we teach everything in the Bible. Um, it's really easy if we're doing what's called a topical sermon or just kind of saying, hey, this is a cool package, I'll preach on that, to focus on that and to leave out like harder truths. So when we go through like a book of the Bible systematically, it makes sure that we're accountable to teaching everything. Um, the other thing that's important, it allows us to be able to pull the true meaning out of Scripture. Um, and that's what exegetical means. So you may have heard kind of the terms exegesis or eisegesis. Exegesis means that we're pulling the meaning out of the Bible, um, where eisegesis is basically we're taking kind of our own meaning and we're putting it into a specific verse. I'll give you a quick illustration of that. So, uh, you know, in Philippians, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Awesome verse. Put it on a t-shirt, your coffee mug. Great. Now, the thing is, um, that doesn't always kind of work out. So me, uh, being five foot something, uh, yeah, a little overweight, I've lost weight though, but a little overweight, bad knees, and in my 40s, um, really at this point, no amount of faith is going to help me to play in the NBA. It's just, it's not it, right? So that contest really doesn't work there. If we look at the, that verse in a specific contest, what we're seeing is that Paul is talking about how he has been without and he has had a lot of stuff and he's realized he's learned how to be content in every situation and then he follows it up, I can do all things through Christ. So there's something very specific there. Part of kind of the exegetical teaching, and I apologize, I'm kind of giving you an insight to way that we we kind of study the Bible here, um, is that what we do is that we look at the verse, the, the passage of a story like Lazarus see how it fits in with the context of like passages leading up to it, but also we want to look at it as a whole in terms of the theme of what John is trying to teach. This takes place in the Gospel of John. Um, and this is very, very important for us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, before we get there, we do want to talk about kind of four points that I want to, I want to get out here, um, and they should be showing up here for you. The first thing is that Jesus had a close relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, So when we hear Lazarus, he was actually the brother to Mary and Martha. The first instance we see with Mary and Martha, we can find that in Luke 10, 38 through 48. Um, This is the story where Jesus was traveling, they entered into a village. Um, He's in the home of Mary and Martha, and it's a story of Mary, she's working feverishly in order to get things done. Uh, Martha, sorry, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Uh, Martha is upset that she's doing all the work. I mean, and Kind of rightly so. I mean, Jesus traveled with a lot of people, so she was playing host, she was doing everything, was upset at Mary. And Jesus' response to her, um, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. This one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and will not be taken away from her. So this is the first story we see that. Um, The second instance is actually going to be in these scriptures that we're going to be going over today. Um, We see that in John uh, 11, verses 3 and 5. Um, The most obvious one is basically in in verse 5 where it says, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Right before that, I want to point out another thing as well. In in verse 3 it says, The one you love is sick. Um, And the reason why that phrasing is important is because this is written in John. John never calls himself like, Hey, this is me, John in John. He usually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
or the one Jesus loved. So this, this phrase here is kind of echoing that type of, uh, that verbiage, that same type of connection that John has to Jesus is also kind of connoted here as well. Um, the second point, this is the third time that uh, Jesus brought somebody back to life. Um, we see that in Mark 5, 35 through 43. This is the synagogue leader's daughter. Um, we see that again also in Luke 7, uh, verses 11 through 17. This is the widow's son um, who Jesus also brings back to life. Now, one of the things that kind of marks a, a difference between this story and the, and the, uh, the Lazarus story and these two other accounts is the time in which Jesus raised that person from the dead. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into the story here. Um, the third point, this was the seventh of the seven signs of John's gospel. Um, if you were here last week and you listened to Chase's sermon, uh, Chase actually talked about a lot of time, uh, John is referred to as the book of signs. Um, and the reason why is that Jesus takes seven miracles and picks and chooses very specific one to put in this, in this story, um, and he centers his book around it. What are the seven signs? Well, here you go. So uh, the first one is changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana, healing of the royal official son, healing of the paralyzed man in the pool of Bethesda and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So again, we'll just cut that out. Don't worry, this is not live. It is, but sorry. Um, a healing of the paralyzed man in the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, John's gospel, and this is my fourth point, John's gospel had a different focus than the others. Um, a lot of the books in the Bible are written in very specific ways. So when we start thinking about like the epistles, and those are books in the New Testament, which are typically letters written to cities or churches um, in that area. A lot of them are written by Paul, but some are written by other authors as well. Um, and they're usually a correspondence. And we see this best, like if you read 1 Corinthians, when you get into 1 Corinthians, John says, hey, in my previous letter, um, and you're kind of thinking, hey, well, this is 1 Corinthians, what's up with that? So there, it kind of connotes there was some correspondence back and forth between that. Um, when we look at the gospel, typically those authors had a very specific theme that they're trying to put out, and there's a purpose for that. Uh, because of that, those books aren't necessarily written in chronological order. Um, a lot of times what happens is that they put stories together because the stories kind of have a very similar purpose to that. Um, it's important. So like in Matthew, Matthew starts with this kind of chronological account of Jesus' lineage and birth. Uh, Mark starts with a quote from Isaiah and Jesus' baptism. Uh, Luke starts with this revelation given to Mary and Joseph and also a revelation given to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And then we get to John. John's different. So he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, and that Word came down and became flesh. John is setting the stage to show Jesus not only has this earthly lineage that kind of lines up with the prophetic views of the, uh, of the Old Testament, but he is showing that Jesus was before all of that. Jesus was God. He was the Word in the beginning, came down and became flesh. Now, next here, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a little map. This isn't a point, but just kind of a, an aside here. In my mind, I was going to have like a little like laser-like in PowerPoint, and then I was like, okay, no, the monitors are in front of me, so I don't know how I'm going to do that. But um, I want to point out a couple different things here. So if you're kind of looking at this area, at the very, very bottom, you're going to see the Dead Sea. Um, to the left of that, that's Judea. In Judea, you're going to find uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bethany, and also Jericho. 
Above that, you have Samaria, and then above that is Galilee, which has Nazareth. So as we know, Jesus, his family was from Nazareth. You know, we know from the Bible that he was born ultimately in Bethlehem, but his family, according to census, was from Nazareth. So when you ever hear kind of stories of people saying, hey, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, this is what they're saying. And there's kind of reason to that, is because everything is centered around Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. Man, why, why do I say Jerusalem? Um, it's okay, you can laugh, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, but yes, um, everything is centered around that. Um, and the further you get away from Jerusalem, uh, is the, the more less spiritual technically you are. Um, they would look at you as somebody that probably can't get to the temple once a year to do your cleansing, to offer sacrifices, and you were looked as less than. Um, Jesus, that means Jesus would often have to travel through Samaria if he wanted to get to Judea. And that means a lot of people, and you'll see this, if you read kind of the next chapters here, like anywhere from like John 10 and beyond, you'll see people saying, well, isn't he from Samaria? Isn't he a Samaritan? Um, and that's part of the reason why, if they ever saw him coming down, he was coming from Samaria. Now, one other, one other thing here I do want to show you on this slide is that right above the Dead Sea to the right, um, we see a little, little uh, heading that says Bethany beyond the Jordan. Um, this is kind of the historical place where um, Jesus is baptized by John. Um, and this will come into play a little bit later on. So I, did, I wanted to kind of point out these contexts. Now, we're almost kind of into the, to the scripture part here. So I thank you for bearing with me. One last thing here, the sections that we're gonna go over really quickly here, this is kind of the flyover point, John 10, uh, 7, chapter seven through 10. These sections are most likely in chronological order. Uh, and that's because there's references to different feasts. So the first feast we see, we see the, the festival of the tabernacles. Uh, this is in John 7:10. This typically took place in October. Uh, the festival of dedication in John 10:22. This is also known as Hanukkah, is what a lot of uh, it's how it's referred to today. This happened in December, and then the Passover, which takes place in uh, John 12:22. That's in April. So all of these events from John chapter 7 through 12 takes place between October and April. All right, so now we're to kind of setting the stage here. So again, high level view of what's going on leading up to Lazarus. So what we see in John chapter seven is that Jesus had avoided going to Judea. Um, again, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, and Bethany because he said many times this was not his time. His time had not come. Uh, his family at this point actually tries to get him to go. And it's usually, it says, you know, his brothers were kind of coercing him. They're basically saying, hey, um, if you want to get your name out there, you need to go to Jerusalem at this time because, hey, this is our festival. No one does these things in private. You should go out there. And he's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. Ironically, right after he tells him this, his family goes up and then it says he goes up in secret. So he does end up going, but he doesn't go with this large crowd of, of people, most likely. Um, he says kind of this, a version of this uh, in many ways over the next four chapters. So of this, my time has not yet come, um, he says this throughout. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. But he also, as you see further in chapter 7, he will say, you don't know me because you don't know my father. And that's something that's going to be repeated too. That's another common theme. Um, in John chapter 8, again, this is what Chase spoke about last week. 
Um, he points out a couple different things. I'm going to bring those up again here as well. Um, he points out that Jesus starts to advocate for the woman caught in adultery. So this is the story of, of the woman that's caught in adultery, and she's pulled out, and she's been in front of everybody. Um, Jesus bends down. He writes into the sand. Um, and what I really like here is that Chase makes an interesting correlation between Jesus bending down and drawing in the same way, in the sand, the same way God bent down with his finger and wrote out the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's found in Exodus uh, 30. 118. He also makes the statement here that he is the light of the world. Through the rest of the chapter, he reveals more about who he is and how he is greater than Abraham. This marks the first time that the Jews tried to stone Jesus. In John chapter 9, uh, this is the story of the blind man who had his sight restored. Um, some really cool aspects of this story, and again, I, I kind of just encourage everyone, you know, read, read these sections of John independently. Um, but one thing that we do see is that we see this man was blind from birth. And typically what that meant is that a lot of people believed at that time is because you were, if you were blind at birth, there was a problem. There was a problem with sin, that your parents have sinned. Um, and because of that, you are being punished. Um, people with disabilities typically were not allowed to do certain tasks. Um, just like when sacrifices are being offered up to, to God, they had to be blameless, um, like sheep or dove. They couldn't have any markings on them. In the same way, um, people could not perform certain duties if they had some sort of a physical disability. So that limited him um, from that. What is really, really good to see is that as Jesus um, going up and healing this man, he makes a couple of confessions. He says, one thing I do not know in, in 925, I was blind and now I can see. Here he's responding to Pharisees who's basically saying, like trying to challenge him, like, hey, you weren't really blind. Um, and he's making, this, uh, he's making this kind of a uh, retort towards them. And then in, in 932, he says, throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. And here is a cool illustration of Jesus showing his power over sin and ultimately original sin, that there was nothing that this person could have done or been born that Jesus couldn't change. And he was showing that he has the power in order to overcome that. This is also another illustration of, of spiritual blindness of the people and that they are all in darkness. Uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd that lays down his life for the flock. In verse uh, 17 and 18, it says, I lay down my life willingly, and I have the authority to take it back up again. In verse 28, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And this marks the second time that the Jews tried to stone Jesus. Now in John 10, 40, we see Jesus leaving Judea and going back to the place where John the Baptist had, had baptized people, assembling back to uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is about uh, 35 miles away. It's relevant because in that time, that would have been about a day and a half walk from that place to Bethany where the story starts to take place. So here we are, we're going to jump into now the story of Lazarus. So this is going to be John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 
Um, and I'm going to read some passages, and we're going to kind of stop and kind of talk through a couple things that we're going we're to pull out. Um, now, now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him saying, to him saying Lord, the love you won, the Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, so, that's important, remember that word so. So when he heard this, that he was sick, he stayed two more days where he was. That's really important. So how would you react when you hear Jesus saying, this will not end in death? We can look back on that now, and we can say, ultimately, we know what happens. We know eventually Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But look at it at the point from the disciples at that time. They really had no clue what that meant. Um, all they knew is that Jesus said this, and he says, hey, this is not going to end in death. So in their mind, hey, everything's going to be fine. Um, this event ultimately was to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why he stayed the, other, the, the extra two days. He could have gone quickly, and he didn't. Um, now, if we, if we jump into a little bit further here in chapter 7, it says, or verse 7, then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again. And Jesus responds, aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because there is no light in him. Now, a couple things we want to point out here. Obviously, the disciples were very concerned about what was going to happen if Jesus went back. He was like, hey, you were just almost stoned twice. And in fact, there was many times in the, the passages leading up that they were trying to arrest him. A lot of the re religious rulers were trying to seize him. And it says Jesus just kind of got away from them. He hid through the crowd. He just disappeared for some reason. And no one was able to lay a hand on him. And now the disciples are like, hey, I'm worried. We really don't want to go back here. We just left this place. Um, but Jesus is like, and then he kind of gives this, this really cool message here where it says, aren't there 12 hours a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But anyone that walks during the night does not stumble because their light is not in him. This is very reminiscent of when Jesus is on the cross and he's hanging there and he says, Father, forgive them for I know not what they do. This is the same type of, um, this is the same type of, uh, I, I believe, the, the language that he is saying being able to say, these people, they're in darkness. They're in darkness, and that's why they're doing these things. They need to be brought into the light in order for them to see what is going on around them. Now, this is going to pick up back again here. Um, in verse 11, we're going to say, uh, he said this, and Jesus told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. And, Jesus, and then the disciples told, told to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, uh, um, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, uh, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too that we may die with him. 
Um, it's interesting. We'll talk a little bit about that kind of last statement, that last statement there too. But um, he tells his disciple, his disciples, a couple times that he's going to bring Lazarus back to life, and it's it's kind of funny because he, you know, often Jesus does speak in parables, and sometimes he does kind of uh, kind of necessarily allude to what he's saying without necessarily saying it. So he says, "Hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go and wake him up." Disciples, you know, typically what we see a lot of times in Scripture, they're like, well, hey, if he's just asleep, he's going to be fine. He'll wake up. We're good. Jesus is like, okay, no, no, listen, he's dead. Okay, I'm just telling you right now. Lazarus died. We're going to go. And then he says this point. He says, I am glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't there while he was sick and dying because I want to show you the glory of God. This is really what it comes down to. Now, I want you to kind of think about that. And this is something that I, you know, typically like when I read scripture, I try to put my place, like myself in that place. Um, What would I have thought at the time? What would you have thought at the time if you were dealing with a family member or a loved one that was dying? You send message to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, hey, the person that you love is dying. He doesn't show up. You know, in fact, he waits two more days before he makes his journey back. Now, if you kind of see some of the other stories, you know, Jesus has, has healed people before that were sick without even being there. Um, we see that kind of with um, um, one of the, uh, with Jairus' son, he goes out there, he's like, my daughter's sick, and then Jesus comes and he says, listen, Lord, you don't have to come into my house, I know who you are, if you can just say the word and my daughter's going to be healed, and he's like, great, because of your faith, I healed your daughter. Awesome. Jesus was able to do that. So if you're Mary or Martha, if you're disciples, you're probably thinking, they're probably thinking at this point, Jesus can just say the word and do that. But that's not what happens. Um, Lazarus gets sicker and sicker and sicker and then ultimately dies. So how would you feel in that situation? Like, what, what do you think that does to your faith? Um, how, are you, how would you be wrestling with that thought? So we're going to move on here. Uh, in verse 17... Oh, sorry, I told you we talk about the, Thomas's reaction. So uh, Thomas says, sorry, let's go to that we may die with them. Um, was Thomas' response faithful? Kind of think about it. Think about it just kind of the, in, in light of what we had just talked about here. Um, Thomas was basically saying, you know, Thomas knew, and all the disciples knew at this point, the biggest concern is that, hey, they're going to try to kill Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to show the glory of God. I just said, this, is, this story's not going to end in death. This is, I'm, I'm going here for a specific purpose. Now, in our human nature, a lot of times we have a hard time reconciling kind of our external circumstances with Jesus' words, and there's a tension between that often. Um, Thomas was seeing, okay, this is going to end in death. We're going to die too. Let's go, guys. Very reminiscent to kind of Peter. Peter's the same way. You know, Lord, no way. You know, we're with you all the way, no matter what, no matter what. Um, and so there, there is a little bit of faith in that. But what Jesus is wanting, he's, he's wanting something deeper. He's wanting something deeper for them to understand about who he is. Now, moving into verse 17 here. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, uh, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. Um, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary men seated in the house. When Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. 
Now, there's, there's really some interesting responses here to what's, what's going on. So as we talked about, Bethany is, is, was close to Jerusalem. So a lot of the people that were in Jerusalem, the Jews that were there, they were probably witness to Jesus being kind of, say, kind of driven out of Judea. They were there when he was teaching, when he was doing these things. They were there when the religious rulers were upset, trying to arrest him, trying to stone him. So they knew these things were going on. Those people went now to Bethany to mourn with Martha and Mary. Um, And then Martha strategically met Jesus outside of the village. She knew all this. All the people were in the village, so she went outside the village. And both Martha and Mary say this same line. If you were here, Lazarus would still be alive. Now, for me, this shows that obviously as they were kind of struggling with hearing the words from the messenger that, hey, this would not end in death, and trying to reconcile that with Lazarus being dead, they were obviously talking, trying to talk through that. Just kind of imagine what that conversation is, kind of wrestling with knowing Jesus has the power to do things, but that didn't happen. So they're they're talking. For me, this shows that they're they're kind of talking, communicating, and wrestling with, with what's going on. They both say that, but Martha does add a kind of something extra here. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Let's move on here to verse uh, 23. 23. Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Looking kind of at these verses here, was Martha's response faithful? You know, she says, Lord, if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. <clears throat> All you had to do was be here, and everything would have been different. And there is a little bit of, for me, there was a little bit of, of, of faith and unfaithfulness in these statements. Many times we know Jesus has the power to do things, but looking at our circumstances, we struggle with knowing that, can Jesus really get us out of here? And I know for me, sorry, sometimes uh, this does hit a little bit closer to home, but we look at circumstances and sometimes we can only see the circumstance and we don't see the power of Jesus. Now, Jesus, excuse me, I'm not normally a crier, and I know for some reason I cry up here a lot, and I, you know, so I apologize. Uh, <laughs> um, Jesus says these remarkable words. Martha says, listen, I, I know, I know he's going to rise again. I know at the resurrection, you know, Lazarus is going to be here again. And there's this pause in my mind. Jesus is like, no, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, will be risen again. And she makes this confession, yes, Lord, believe you're the Messiah. But then it changes a bit here. I want to show you. Having said this in verse 28, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, um, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Um, where have you put him, he asked. Uh, Lord, they told him, uh, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews um, said, see how they loved him. But some of them say, couldn't, um, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lying against it and said, remove the stone. Um, why did Martha call Jesus teacher? I know this is kind of a little point, but I think this is something very significant here. Jesus made, just made this confession that, hey, this is the Messiah. He goes to Mary, doesn't call him Messiah, he calls him teacher, which is very typical of what you would call a rabbi during that day. And a lot of people really thought of Jesus as a really, really good teacher. Um, or they thought that he was a prophet. The jump to Messiah was a really, really big jump. And in fact, it's, it's one when Jesus started making certain claims that almost got him killed multiple times. So Martha, in this moment, calls him teacher. Jesus, he, he goes in, he talks to Mary again, Lord, if you had been here. Um, and he saw the crying, and he saw the Jews that were with her also crying. Now, kind of back in the day, a, a way to show your support for um, somebody that had lost a loved one is that everyone goes and grieves with them, and they cry and they wail. Um, in fact, some kind of richer people back in during that time frame, they would hire mourners to come to even show kind of a bigger spectacle. So that's why you see here, Mary's at home, there's people around her, she gets up to go and they think, hey, she's going to mourn and cry at the tomb, we're going to go with her, we're going to show that support. Jesus comes up, he sees all this, and he's deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And he weeps. We start to think, okay, why is he troubled? Well, if we go back in the beginning here, he talks about, well, Jesus is the light. We see that everyone is walking in darkness and they're stumbling. And they're going to be stumbling until they're brought back into the light. So let's lead us on here to the, kind of the next point. So moving into chapter 40. So Jesus said to her, um, remove the stone, Jesus said, Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he had been there for four days. So Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you will always hear me. But because of this crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead men came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Still at this point, there was still an instance, a sense of Martha had a hard time believing of Jesus's words and what he was trying to say. She was worried about the smell. That was significant for him being in the tomb for four days, decomposition would have started to take place. 
Now, this is one of the biggest difference between this story and the other times we, see, we saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead. Uh, most likely, those other stories occurred, Jesus healing them right after. So at the first, the first story, when we look at um, one of the kind of the synagogue leaders in Mark, uh, basically what happened, this guy comes up, hey, my daughter's dying. Jesus, come on and help. Jesus starts on his way. He gets stopped with some conversations. And then during that time, somebody else comes up and said, hey, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's already dead. So Jesus goes, he walks up, he sees this group of people mourning, he says, don't worry, um, she's just asleep, and they laugh at him. Um, So he kind of puts all those people that laughed on the side, he takes in three disciples with him, and her parents, they go in there, he grabs the little girl's hand, and he says to the girl, Talitha Tulum, and he says, little girl, get up, she gets up. Um, So immediately afterwards. We see the same thing in the next story in Luke, where it's the widow's son that died, um, at this time, basically, he's kind of being brought out to be buried. Burial typically happened the same day. Um, unless it happened at night, then in the morning, that's when the burial will take place. So uh, most likely then, this event, didn't, uh, Jesus raising this person from the dead, um, happened um, right after that person died. Here, there would have been no question that Lazarus was dead. Um, his body would be wasting away at this point. Now, if we kind of think about this in light of Jesus rising from the dead, right about the same amount of time of Lazarus being raised and Jesus being raised during the, uh, during the resurrection was multiple days. There has been no question that Jesus died or Lazarus died. Now, both the disciples and Martha were told that this was specifically for their belief in God's glory. He said in verse 15, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there that you may believe. Let's go to him. And, Jesus, and in verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This whole passage has people claiming faith, but not really understanding the depth that Jesus wants them to believe. We see that with the disciples and Thomas specifically, with Martha and Mary and the Jews there. And so here Jesus makes a very loud and pronounced point. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And this prayer is an audible prayer that all the people around him hears. And he says that. But because of this crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. And after saying this, there is a loud shout, Lazarus, come out. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus publicly talking to his father and illustrating that this power of what Jesus did, this is where it comes from. Now, this is what ultimately makes Jesus our salvation. These stories show who Jesus was. And in order for us to have salvation, which salvation is us ultimately being able to be reconciled with our relationship, relationship to God, that reconciliation, that sacrifice had to come from God himself. So if we look at this, we see in Exodus 3, uh, verses 13 to 14, when Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God your answers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to tell them. I am has sent you. In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. 
John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 1, I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. No one believes in me. Even if he dies, he will live. Now think back to these words. How do you think Mary, Martha, and the disciples are, are processing those things now? of seeing all the events that are leading up to this point and sees Jesus making this loud proclamation of this is who I am, this is where my power comes from, and Lazarus, get up. This is the last miracle leading up to the crucifixion in John's gospel. And what we're seeing here that the narrative of John's gospel is one where God's glory is shown not only through the power of those seven events, but is ultimately revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, four times before this, Jesus said his hour had not yet come. John 2, 4, John 7, 7, John 7, 30, John 8, 20. But this event was the sign that his time had come. And we see that with Jesus on the cross of John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. And John sums all this up at the end of his book in, in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Jesus performed other signs in the presence of his disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He very specifically picked these, these stories for God's glory. And now when we look back at Jesus' life, but in the greater narrative of seeing Jesus in the, the context of the entire Bible and the entirety of God's word, we see Jesus for who he is. He was in the beginning. He was prophesied about in the, in the Old Testament. He fulfilled those prophecies with his birth. The blind saw, the lame walked, and the dead were raised. Now, this is why, um, this is why we do take communion. Uh, it's really not just to remember the act of his crucifixion but it's to know that it was God himself, God incarnate who died so that the church can have eternal life and experience that transformational power now. And it's that power that his resurrection brings. As followers of Jesus, yes, we will join him in heaven and we will, we will be part of the resurrection that, that goes into heaven and we'll have fellowship with Jesus in heaven. But that same transformational power is for us right now here on earth. Jesus died so that we no longer have to be slaves of sin. There's no sin that can be forgiven. There's no hurt that can't be healed. There's no personality trait that can't be sanctified. We talk a lot in this culture now about identity and purpose. And a lot of times saying, well, this is just who I am. I'm never going to change. I don't need to change. But know this more than anything. Our true identity and purpose is not based on race, on culture, sexuality, political affiliation, or statehood. Our true identity, the most realest part of who we are, is based in and on the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know who you are, 
you need to know Jesus. Now we're gonna, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna take communion. And uh, I'm gonna encourage you to kind of take communion at your, uh, at your own pace. And also, if, if you don't know Jesus, um, we ask that you don't partake. But if you have questions and you want to know more about who Jesus is, please uh, feel free to reach out to one of us. Reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us before we loved you. We thank you, God, that we serve the great I am. We thank you, Father, that we are not deserving of your love, but you still love us. We thank you, God, that your, your transformational power can change the hardest of hearts, that continually sanctifies us deep within. We thank you, Father, that we serve a God that loves us unconditionally. Help us to follow you, to trust in you, Jesus. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.